Long History, Henry Hudson, Top 10 Surprises. Hello everyone and welcome to this, which is very probably our last episode on Henry Hudson. And that generally means, as has happened with a lot of documents, we finish off our look at a document about a famous journey or adventure by going over the document and thinking about what are the top 10 surprises in that document, what stood out. And so well, that's what we're going to do in this episode. We've already done it with Magellan, Columbus, Francis Drake, Sir Walter Raleigh. But in this case, we're going to look at Henry Hudson's four journeys. Now, the fact that we've reached this point means that preparations are already well underway for the next series on Long History. So don't forget to subscribe to be informed of when that's released. But here we go with the most surprising, the things that stood out with regards to Henry Hudson's four journeys. So this episode will also serve as something of an introduction to the four journeys by Henry Hudson. So quickly, just to summarise those four journeys. Henry Hudson in general is on a quest to find a route to the Far East. First he heads straight north, hoping to go via the North Pole. Then he heads to the northeast, heading around Russia. And in both those first two journeys he's forced to turn back because of the ice. And in the third journey, at first he attempts to go around Russia again. But then he turns back, changes his mind and heads towards the North American coast. And it's quite, not quite clear there whether he's looking for a passage to the Far East or not, but I, I presume he is. And it's the, this point in the third journey where his most famous travels begin, because this is where he heads up the Hudson River. And I think I'm not in control of every detail here, but I think he was looking for a route to the Far East and was hoping that this journey up the Hudson River would lead to perhaps the Great Lakes, which may, might then lead to the Pacific. I'm not sure. And it's on his fourth journey where he tries to find a passage around the north of, well, today's Canada. And that's where he meets his end. So that's the summary of all four journeys. And it brings me to the first surprise. Now, this is called Long History. And a lot of the documents I've looked at have been very long. And in fact, this document, these documents about Henry Hudson's journeys aren't the longest I've looked at. But nevertheless, even for someone like me, who's happy to listen to repetition in these types of documents. I find something about that to be hypnotic and fascinating and the slight de changes in the details always interest me. But I have to say these four journeys, as, must, as momentous as it must have been to take part in them, they're actually quite tedious to read about. I mean, I made some quick notes here and it isn't until the 11th episode of 25 before we meet any people other than the crew of the ship. And it isn't until about episode 22 of 25 when the real drama happens. But I have to say, this isn't the only time I'll say this, but there's something intriguing about this structure. And how the document forces you either to fall asleep or to engage in it and, and, and look at the minutiae of what's happening. As things slowly build up and build up to its kind of denouement, its main event in episode 22, is it? I, I think it is. So that's the first surprise. I'm used to these documents starting slowly, but I'm not used to them being quite this slow. And we have 11 episodes of Henry Hudson or whoever writes these documents telling us about the weather, the ice and the waves. And I guess that's ultimately because these aren't supposed to be diaries. They were meant to be kind of factual descriptions of the actual physical journey and not about the personalities involved. But anyway, that's the first surprise. And on to surprise number two, just a quick one, really, because it does stand out that this is four journeys and not one. So in a way, even though these journeys are quite um, repetitive and dull, for want of a better word, the 
places they visit, the different directions they go in, the realisation that their attempt to reach the Far East has failed, the fact that they have to turn back and then start again. It all means that despite the kind of superficially dull details here, there's a lot happening. And rather than just one famous journey around the world, we're seeing Henry Hudson's repeated attempts to find success. And failing, I think we could more or less say failing at every attempt to do what he actually wants to do, which is to reach the Far East, although he describes some important places along the way. So that's the second surprise. This is the first time we've got kind of four journeys for the price of one in uh, one of our documents. Now for the third surprise, I've actually got a quotation here which I'll give and it's from episode 10. The third, fair, sunshining weather with a fair gale of wind at east-northeast and we steered away west-southwest by our compass which varied 17 degrees westward. This morning we were among a great fleet of Frenchmen which lay fishing on the bank, but we spake with none of them. And I suppose again we can say that in a document where nothing much happens, at least perhaps for around the first half of the document, these little details such as meeting a fleet of Frenchmen take on added interest. And I suppose this is something that surprises me in terms of there is a strong sense here that Westerners, Europeans, have been here before. And this is the first document we've looked at on long history that has so much of a strong sense of, you know, this is already populated by a certain European country. Although, thinking on my feet there, I suppose this also happened in the Francis Drake document as well, but this is the first time certainly that we've come across Frenchmen, for example. And there's a sense of French daily life here with these French fishermen, which we certainly don't get in the same way in any of the other documents. So I've said that nothing happens until episode 11, and then from episode 10 I've got a, a small surprise here. And I suppose this is more reflective of my own ignorance than anything, but it surprised me that they came across Frenchmen before they came across local people, native people. But that's surprise number three. Now I really like the name of this document, which is... Uh, I can never remember it, I'll look it up. It's Henry Hudson's Diverse Voyages and Northern Discoveries. But bearing that in mind, that document that emphasises the northernness of this, the fourth surprise is how far they go south on this third journey. I've got a quotation here from episode 13, which is dated the 24th of August 1609. The four and 20th, fair and hot weather, with the wind variable between the north and the east. The afternoon, variable wind, but at four of the clock, the wind came to the east and southeast. So we steered away north by west, and in three watches, we went 13 leagues. At noon, our height was 35 degrees 41 minutes, being far off at sea from the land. And this is quite typical of that, what I could generously call that hypnotic style of writing, telling us the date, the weather, the wind. But the detail here is about that 35 degrees 41 minutes, because that's actually the furthest south that the boat reaches, I think, at least according to footnotes. And those footnotes tell me that that's off Nags Head in South Carolina. So it's quite a surprise that they headed quite so far south along the um, coast of the along the Atlantic coast of the United States. I suppose it's just a pity that there's very little there that identifies that specifically as South Carolina. And there's another quotation here from four days later. The 8th and 20th, fair and hot weather, the wind at south-southwest. 
In the morning at six of the clock we weighed and steered away north twelve leagues till noon and came to the point of land. And being hard by the land in five fathoms, on a sudden we came into three fathoms. Then we bare up and had but ten foot water and joined to the point. Then as soon as we were over we had five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, twelve and thirteen fathoms. Then we found the land to trend away northwest with a great bay and rivers, but the bay we found shoaled. So unfortunately again this is hardly a poetic description of the area, but apparently that's a description of the Delaware Bay, which Henry Hudson must have passed if he went as far south as South Carolina, he then turned back and headed up and then and then eventually would enter the Hudson River. But that's the fourth surprise. I hadn't realised that Hudson headed so quite so far south and kind of glanced or explored those areas of New Jersey and the Delaware Bay. Here's another quote for surprise number five. Our men went on land there and saw great store of men, women and children who gave them tobacco at their coming on land. So they went up into the woods and saw great store of very goodly oaks and some currants. For one of them came aboard and brought some dried and gave me some, which were sweet and good. This day many of the people came aboard, some in mantles of feathers and some in skins of diverse sorts of good furs. Some women also came to us with hemp. They had red copper tobacco pipes and other things of copper they did wear about their necks. At night they went on land again, so we rode very quiet, but dares not trust them. So the thing that stood out here is that after so much dull description of the weather and places that are famous but not particularly poetically described, when Hudson heads up the river that would eventually take his name, he actually comes across a lot of people. And certainly in comparison, the events here are quite dramatic. There are some attacks... Lots of people come on the ship, there are some misunderstandings, but after all the dull description previous, it's quite surprising that there's so much life in this area. I mean that in two ways, because Hudson comes across lots of people in this area, which is only surprising because Hudson seems to have avoided meeting very many people until this point. But it's also surprising because, you know, the, the, the drama, the events ramp up here. This is where, after the descriptions of the weather and the waves start to become a lot more interesting. And here we actually get a flavour of these people, and I think as often happens in these descriptions of local people by European explorers, they, they all end up sounding the same. But there are flavours of this specific area here. The tobacco and the copper, the feathers, the furs, the men, women and children. So that's quite surprising that there's so many people and that we do get a bit of a flavour of who these people were. Okay, we're on to surprise number six now. And anyone who's listened to all 25 of the episodes of Hudson's Journey won't be very surprised that we've managed to squeeze the first three journeys into five surprises and the remaining five surprises all are all bunched up in the fourth journey. Because this is where the real drama, the real surprising drama happens. So surprise number six here is a more overall surprise about this fourth journey, because the whole remit changes. First of all, we get Hudson's version of events, then we get this Abercook Pritchard's version of events, 
followed by a few extra details which actually don't help at all to clarify the story, but we get the multiple points of view here, unlike in all the other journeys. And as I said in the previous episode, one thing that becomes particularly interesting here is the, the dubiousness of Abacook Pritchard's version of events. Perhaps dubiousness is overstating it, but it is very convenient that the events pan out in such a way that the man who wrote this document ends up being totally innocent of any wrongdoing. Who knows? But I think this is the only time in any of the journeys I've covered so far, and admittedly there are multiple accounts of some of the journeys I've looked at, but I've only looked at one. But it's been interesting to see, was it two or three different viewpoints of the same journey. And I think as I move ahead with Long History, I'm going to find out more of these various viewpoints of the same journey. I find it very interesting. But that's the sixth surprise, the various viewpoints. And on to number seven now, and um, the curious thing about the fourth journey is that personalities suddenly appear from nowhere. In pretty much all of the previous three journeys, there's been very little personality given of the, the men on board the ship. And in this fourth journey, the personalities become so important. I've got this quotation from episode 16, which was Henry Hudson's version of this journey. The two and twentieth I caused Master Colburn to be put into a pink bound for London with my letter to the adventurers importing the reason wherefore I so put him out of the ship and so plied forth. So it's a strange little detail to give because what this is basically saying is that very early on in the journey he had to throw out one of his men but were not given the actual reason why. But this is at least a hint that there's been some disagreement here. I think if he'd been ill, we would have been given the reason, but we're not. Instead, there's a letter telling someone why he was thrown off the ship. And in episode 18, we've got Abercook Pritchard's version of the very same event. Thwart of Sheppy, our master sent Master Colbert back to the owners with his letter. So Sheppy's a place. And after they'd left Sheppy... This Master Colbert was sent back for some reason that's never explained, but it does hint at some disagreement here in this fourth journey. Now, in the previous episode about the top ten events, I covered the other disagreement. This was the one that took place in late June 1610, when Henry Hudson took out his map and showed it to everyone. And then everyone gave their opinions about whether they should continue on or should go back to England. And this phrase in particular stood out, as I mentioned in the previous episode, but I'll give it again here. There were some who then spake words, which were remembered a great while after. And the thing to point out, as I pointed out in the previous episode, is that it's okay to um, uh, encourage people to give their opinions, but you've got to remember what will happen when those opinions are given. Once people have disagreed with you, they can't take that back. And for example, if for example you end up starving in a bay through a cold winter, and you're one of the people who wished they'd come back to England when you were given a choice, and if you're the head of that ship and you know those people know that you know that they... etc. etc. No good can come of it, in short. But that's another moment when there was explicit disagreement on the ship. Now that was in June, but we have another quotation dated the 10th of September 1610, so that's around three months later. But this is in one of those final versions of events given in episode 25, and this was from a note found in the desk of Thomas Widows, and he said this. The 10th day of September, 1610, after dinner, 
my master called the company together to hear and bear witness of the abuse of some of the company. It having been the request of Robert Jewett that the master should redress some abuses and slanders, as he called them, against this Jewett. Which thing, after the master had examined and heard with equity what he could say for himself, there were proved so many and great abuses and mutinous matters against the master and action by Jewett that there was danger to have suffered them longer, and it was fit time to punish and cut off farther decisions of the like mutinies. So this is a rather garbled text, but in some way it implicates Jewett. The word mutiny is mentioned significantly, but this is in September. This is before they've even suffered the whole of that winter in uh, Hudson Bay. So we can see that even at that point things were going bad for the ship. Unsurprisingly, it has to be said. But all these earlier hints of things going wrong are that surprise number seven. Surprise number eight. Who was Henry Green? Now this is slightly baffling and the first time I read this document, this quotation in particular was really striking. Now, for that I am come to speak of him, out of whose ashes, as it were, that unhappy deed grew, which brought a scandal upon all that are returned home, and upon the action itself. The multitude, like the dog running after the stone, but not the caster, therefore, not to wrong the living nor slander the dead, I will, by the leave of God, deliver the truth as near as I can. Now, I find the wording there to be quite fascinating, actually, because Abercook Bridget here has clearly finally got to the subject of Henry Green, who is now ashes, as he says there, and who prompted the unhappy deed, that is, the mutiny. And he even alludes here to the fact that this mutiny has brought scandal upon everyone who eventually made it back to England. So here we have Abercook Bridget explicitly blaming Henry Green for all this and for his own current situation in that people are pointing the finger at him and all the other survivors of this journey. But that's just the beginning of the surprise here. I'll give the rest of the quotation. You shall understand that our master kept in his house at London a young man named Henry Green, born in Kent of worshipful parents, but by his lewd life and conversation he had lost the goodwill of all his friends and had spent all that he had. This man our master would have to see with him, because he could write well. Our master gave him meat and drink and lodging, and by means of one Master Venson, with much ado, got four pounds of his mother to buy him clothes, wherewith Master Venson would not trust him, but saw it laid out himself. This Henry Green was not set down in the owner's book, nor any wages made for him. He came first aboard at Gravesend, and at Harwich should have gone into the field with one Wilkinson. So it's really hard to know what to make of this, but it is very striking that this is described at all. It is very rare in any of these journeys that any per any single person stands out, but Abercock Bridget here is clearly describing the man who is to blame as he thinks for the mutiny. But what these details are actually telling us is, is difficult to work out. Henry Hudson was clearly friends with the man, got him on board, but he wasn't an employee in the same way as the other men on the ship. The two men, the two Henrys, seem to have fallen out. That led to the mutiny. And ultimately that led to Henry Hudson's fate. Now, bearing in mind that Abercook Pritchard wrote this version of events, we just cannot know if any of this is true. Because if this is true, that this was Henry Hudson's friend, who somehow was only semi-legitimately on board, 
it also sounds like the perfect person to become the scapegoat for such an event as a mutiny. So who knows? Surprise number nine is this very dramatic moment. The master called to the carpenter and told him that he was bound, but I heard no answer he made. Now Arnold Ludlow and Michael Butte rallied at them and told them their knavery would show itself. Then was the shallop hailed up to the ship's side and the poor, sick and lame men were called upon to get them out of their cabins into the shallop. The master called to me, who came out of my cabin as well as I could, to the hatchway to speak with him, where, on my knees, I besought them for the love of God to remember themselves and to do as they would be done unto. They bade me keep myself well and get me into my cabin, not suffering the master to speak with me. But when I came into my cabin again, he called to me at the horn which gave light into my cabin and told me that Dewart would overthrow us all. Nay, said I, it is that villain Henry Green, and I spake it not softly. So it's a dramatic moment of a mutiny actually happening, with Abacook Pritchard conveniently being forced to stay in his cabin, whilst making it clear that Henry Green is the villain, and just for good measure dropping the name of Robert Dewitt in there as well. These being, of course, two of the men who died on the way back to England, so they can't give their own version of events. But it's very rare that there is such drama in these texts. We've seen Magellan's death. There was a little mutiny on Columbus's first journey across the Atlantic. And there have been other mutinies documented on long history. But I think in terms of the sheer drama here, this is perhaps the most dramatic moment of all. So that is surprise number nine. Now the final surprise I also kind of gave in the previous episode. And it's this aspect of this document where in the end we start questioning whether it's true or not, because Abacook Pritchard wrote it. I've already mentioned that here as well, but the surprise I'm going to point out here is slightly different. And the surprise, looking back on all of the four journeys, are the details that were not given here. For example, even on the first journey, to have headed towards the North Pole, which can't have been a pleasant journey, and then to turn around and come back, that was not a success but we're not given any description of what the men thought of that. But when you think about it, you kind of think, well, it must have been a bit of a downer. (laughs) And there are a lot of details like that in these journeys. The second journey was also a failure. In the third journey, we're not told why they turned back and headed back up north to enter the Hudson Bay. We're not given the reasons for that. And what becomes particularly apparent with the fourth journey... It's just how little we've been given the details of the relations between the men on the ship. Because those relations do start to become part of the narrative. And there are clearly a lot of resentments on board this ship. But we're not given many details, for example, about what happened that last winter of Henry Hudson. When he was stuck in Hudson Bay. Unfortunately, we don't really know who was actually responsible for the mutiny unless we just blindly believe Abercook Pritchard's version of events. And then there's another detail like, for example, in the third journey, why did they choose to change their route and go towards the North American coastline? That's not explained to us. So the final surprise here is the details were not given, especially when we look back on those early journeys, which were quite tedious. When you think about it, these men were risking their lives. These were not tedious journeys at all. But we can only imagine what went on. And that's the final surprise. So there you go, that's just another way of looking at Henry Hudson's four journeys. If you haven't actually listened to these episodes, 
I hope this has inspired you in some way to go back and look over those journeys. As I say, they kind of transform from being hypnotic at the start, that's a generous description, to becoming very dramatic later on. Now, we've reached the end of Henry Hudson's journey on long history, but that means another journey is about to begin. So I hope you'll be around when we start to release the episodes of that journey. In the meantime, however, don't forget there's lots to explore on long history. Thank you everyone for listening. I hope you've enjoyed this. Please do like it if you can. And goodbye.